Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Sam Blake has had a great career helping many best-selling writers get their start, but now she's joined their ranks. Her Cat Connolly series about a Dublin detective has been described as P.D. James meets Karen Slaughter. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and today Sam is talking about how she morphed from being one of Ireland's most successful literary agents into a celebrated debut as a novelist. But before we hear from Sam, just a reminder that the show notes for this binge reading episode are available at the website thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find links to Sam's website and books, as well as a free ebook and information on how to subscribe to our podcasts so you don't miss future episodes. But now, here's Sam. Hello there, Sam, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, so you have had a very successful career as a career as a literary agent and publishing consultant. So cynics might think you've had a good uh, appreciation of how difficult it is for writers to make a living. Was there a once upon a time moment that made you decide you wanted to join them? Um, yeah, absolutely. I really, I only do did everything. I only got involved in the publishing industry um, and became a publishing consultant as a result of wanting to write. Um, so I started writing myself in 1999. Uh, my husband went sailing across the Atlantic um, on a race called the um, Atlantic Rally Cruise. Um, and he was gone for eight weeks. And I was during sort of November time. It was winter here in, in Ireland. Um, so the long, dark evenings. Um, and I was working in event management at the time, but I didn't have any children. That was sort of um, a home of my own. And I had an idea for a book and it just seemed a really good time to write it because I had all this spare time. And so I started writing and um, the bug really bit. Um, so by the time he came back from his trip, uh, I didn't even have a computer then. I was going into the office in the evenings. I was writing it longhand and then going into the office in the evenings and the weekends to type it up. Um, but the bug had truly bit. So that when he came back um, at Christmas time, um, he bought me a computer. And um, really from then on, I've just spent every possible evening, every possible spare minute writing away. And so um, I was on about, by the time I got to about book three, um I oh but I wrote finished book one and Julie sent it out all over the place and was rejected left right and center um because it was most people's first books can be um not the most amazing books ever um and uh, by the time I got to about book three I realized that I I sort of knew I knew much more about writing at that point but I didn't I knew I needed to learn more I'd done a degree and all the rest of it and um I really wanted to um, I sort of realise I needed to learn more about actual fiction writing because that's not something they teach you in school. And so I did a workshop down in Dingle in Kerry, a beautiful, beautiful part of Ireland. And um, it was a weekend workshop. But in order to go to the workshop, I had to fly my parents in from the UK. And I had two small children at that point. And I um, you know, had to leave all the, the frozen dinners in the fridge and the messages and all the rest of it. It was complete, you know, a massive operation to try and get away for the weekend. 
So when I came back, um, I felt that I really wanted to, um, again, knew, okay, I did the course, really enjoyed it, realised, yes, I could write, came back thinking, yeah, I need to learn more and more. Um, but I couldn't do the whole weekend thing again. That was just, it wasn't practical. And there wasn't anybody in Ireland at the time who was running one day workshops which is really what I felt I needed um, my husband um, is in the Irish police force and so he worked shifts which meant that sort of every second week if I was going to do a week-long course I'd have to get a babysitter in and that became cost prohibitive so um, I looked at the various courses that were available and realized that nobody was doing one-day courses which is what I wanted um, and I wanted to hear from Beth selling authors um, I, I sort of had a very clear idea about the type of thing I needed to do and so I set up a company called Inkwell running one day courses basically bringing in best selling authors and um asking you know finding out from them how they wrote um and they became really really successful um when i set them up it was like, supposed to be a one saturday a month for the first saturday of every month during the winter so there were sort of five workshops a, a year nearly and um they really took off much more than i thought they were going to far more than i expected because as i say that i was really only doing them for myself so um so really everything I did as a result that was in I think 2006 I started the first ones everything I've done um and the sort of career that I've ended up following um has been as a result literally of wanting to learn how to write myself so that's it's sort of a reverse a reverse thing I didn't go into into the publishing industry first I started writing first oh that's fantastic um and amazing that you would you know basically become the answer to your own problem well, absolutely. This is it. I just, it was one of those things where, you know, you know, you need to do something, you really want to do it. And, um, and I knew that I could, I was working, as I say, I was working in event management. So organizing things was the easy bit. Um, I was very lucky. I have a very good friend called Sarah Webb, who's an author. So when I came up with the idea, I rang her up and I said, you know, what do you think of this? And who would we get? And um, we worked out, originally, I was just going to do one workshop when I started. I wanted to do crime writing. Um, and then when I started thinking about it, by the time I found the hotel, and I'd done all the costings and all that type of thing I realized that it was, it was a bit silly just to do one so I did um, a start writing workshop at the beginning and a getting published workshop at the end and lots of different genre workshops in the middle and um, and that's really why I suppose when I first got involved with publishers and editors and agents when we were when I was running the getting published workshop because it was always really really popular and then I found that um, sort of while I was still writing myself I then was um, reading lots of people's um, books and the more I read, the more I was able to see what needed to go into a book. Um, and then when I found something that I liked, I'd send it to an editor, um, one of the Irish editors I knew, or one of the agents. Um, and I very quite quickly became quite successful and people were picking up the books and they were publishing them, um, which is really exciting. Um, I didn't really look at it as being part of the business. It was just something I did that was extra, um, sort of helping people along the way. And um, But it was something then sort of as time progressed, um, I've sort of formalised a bit more and now I scout for about five or six agents based in the UK and in Ireland. And, um, you know, I'm actually always act actively looking for stuff. Um, but it's always very exciting. It's the best It's the best feeling ever when you, when you read something that you love and then you give it to somebody else and they love it too. I mean, every single time I, I, I doubt myself and I'm not too sure and I'm, you know, sometimes, well, sometimes I don't doubt myself. I just love it completely and I will keep going through everybody until I find somebody else who loves it but you know there's always that that moment when you find somebody else who loves what you've got um and it gets really exciting and that, that's just brilliant so I love it that's wonderful now those first few books that you you tried your hand at did any of those actually become little bones or in deep water or are they still in a drawer somewhere 
No, there's there's about three in a drawer. Um, there was one I did. I did start writing detective uh, fiction series with a um, male detective, and um, I did send it in. I sent it in to um, a lovely lady called Trassa Cody who ran a publishing house called Townhouse Country House, and she really loved it. And it was back in the days when uh, if an editor could see, you know, a little glimmer of hope in a, in a piece of work, then they would... Uh, work on you with it and she sent it out to her readers to look at and I got uh, what what's called readers reports readers critiques back on the manuscript could then see how much work needed doing to it and you know got stuck into it um, but between the so the jigs and the reels her company was she sold her company to Simon Schuster and Simon Schuster decided they weren't going to publish any more fiction in Ireland so that sort of became a dead end in many ways um, but it wasn't a bad thing you know it was, these things happen along the way and um, I and I don't think I think that book that book held me in great, was great because I learned lots. Um, I learned the value of readers report, which is something we do lots of now um, in Inkwell. And um, I, I suppose, yeah, I learned, it was my sort of teething ground. I think one of the things that people need to understand about writing is that some people are very gifted and they can just do it straight off. But nine times out of 10, it's not the first book that gets published. That's the one, you know, not the first book you write that gets published. It's nearly, you know, you need to serve your apprenticeship, if you like, um, in terms of writing and find your voice. And so I suppose it was by the time I'd written that third book that I started to find my voice. And I think I started Little Bones then as the book four. Um, and but Little Bones, I took a few years writing because I was doing obviously doing other things as well and having children and setting up businesses. Um, and somewhere along the line, I can't actually remember the exact order of events, but I decided I'd write a romance, a romancy type of a dark romance in the middle. Um, so I had... I might have just finished Little Bones and then decided I wanted to take a break from it and then wrote a book called True Colours. And I had an agent by then um, in um, London and um, she sent out, I can't, I think, I don't think she sent out Little Bones, but she definitely sent out uh, True Colours. And we had what what, I, what we call um, now in the industry rave, rave rejection. So lots of people loved it, but nobody wanted to buy it. Um, and then I think I went back to Little Bones and started doing more work on that. Um, but True Colours, I decided in the end, um, a couple of years later, that I would publish it myself. And so I decided to self-publish that. And um, and it did really, really well. Um, much better than I thought it would. I think the first day we published it, it you know, went live. I had um, 25,000 downloads or something. So um, so that was great. Um, but it was just, that was supposed to be my first foray into publishing. Um, but I, I just, I, yeah, I always held out for that traditional deal. And then I got another agent um, one of the agents I actually scout for, um, a guy called Simon True in, in WME. Uh, we were chatting one day about um, other people and other authors and bits and pieces. And um, I said something about somebody being very influential on my writing. And um, he turned around to me and said, oh, do you write? Um, and I've sort of forgotten to mention it um, along the way. So um, when I told him about Little Bones, the book that I was then working on, which was actually called The Dressmaker at the time, and I told him that it was about the the bones of a baby being found in the hem of a wedding dress. He just wanted to see it straight away, um, which is quite a scary moment, to be honest, because um, it was, you know, when you've worked with somebody in publishing for a long time and, um, you know, they trust your judgment. When it comes to your own work, it's a completely different thing. And um, I, I went home and I read the book through, so I hadn't read the manuscript for a long time. Um, and it was really, it was one of those moments when, you know, you think, my entire credibility could be blown away here if he thinks it's loads of rubbish. So anyway, Julie sent it and he loved it and that was great. And then he found me a publisher for it. So it's all good. So you obviously had that success with self-publishing. Why do you still very much pursue the traditional model yourself? 
Um, I think it's down, well, certainly for me, I'm sure I probably could continue to self-publish quite successfully. Um, you know, I can run successful businesses and running self-publishing is very much running a business. But um, I like the, um, from a traditional publishing point of view, I like the fact that having the support of an editor out there who knows what they're doing, there's a marketing team, you know, somebody else is worrying about the cover. Um, it gives me the opportunity to get on with writing the story. And really, that's what that's where I want to focus. Um, you know, I want to focus on trying to do the produce the best book that I can and let them worry about all the other bits and pieces. Um, so that's nice. Um, it's, it's great to have a, a team behind you um, when you launch a book as well. When you're self-publishing, it's all very much, you know, you're on your own and you've no really idea of what's going to happen and um, how things are going to be, how things are going to be sort of perceived. Um, whereas with, if you were the traditional publisher, you know, it's not just you going out there. There's a whole gang of you involved in the production of the book. So, um, so that's great. That's what I, I enjoy most, I think. Just out of interest, was True Colours published under your writing name of Sam Blake, which we haven't actually mentioned it, but it it, it is different from the name that you work under as as you as your in your publishing and and literary agent work. Was that under Sam Blake or another name again? No, the the True Colours was published under Vanessa Fox. So my my maiden name is Fox, and uh, my full name is Vanessa Fox O'Loughlin, my married name. And um, so I published uh, the romance under, under Vanessa Fox. But at, at that stage, we had actually come up with a pen name for the crime, um, and it was because it wasn't crime. It's 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 very much more um, sort of a romance book that we um, I wanted to keep Sam Blake for the crime um, because crime is what is really my passion that's what I want to write um because I'm fascinated by mystery and all of those things um but my name is too long really Vanessa Fox O'Loughlin is far too long to go on the cover of a book um and O'Loughlin is a lovely name in Ireland um but you know even as you say it it sounds like it might have a k in the middle when it actually has a gh so it's quite hard to spell and to pronounce outside of this country um and certainly when I'm in the UK and people are introducing me they usually get as far as the o and then start to stumble so um really with a with a writing name you know you want something people are going to be able to remember um and if they hear you on the radio or whatever that, that that's going to stick in their mind so we it took a while to come up with it but we came up with Sam Blake as a as a writing name and, and it works really well yes it's a great name um you mentioned that crime is your passion and there's been a tremendous um flourishing of women authors in Ireland writing crime you just need to mention a few names like Tana French and Alex Barclay and Joe Spain why do you think there has been such a creative surge, and particularly in that mystery thriller crime area in Ireland? Um, well, we're not very sure. Alex Barkley was certainly one of the first. This, we're always I'm always being asked this question, and I say when when the girls and I are doing panels together, we all sit down and we debate it. Um, Alex Barkley was probably one of the first women Irish women crime writers, um, and I think perhaps the the women were always writing, um, but it just it just we're all of quite a similar age and I think we probably all just came to sort of start to submit work um, and get to the point where our work was um, at the right level to be published if you like um, around the same time and so there's been then this this big sort of um, trend um, and there's lots of us it's great yeah Joe Spain's brilliant um, there's, oh, there's loads of them Liz Nugent there's lots and um and it's funny, actually, because most of the men, most of the male crime writers seem to be in the north of Ireland and most of the women seem to be in the south. I don't know why on earth that is. But, um, yeah, it's a, a bit of a mixture. But, yeah, it's just one of those things. It just seem to happen all at the same time. And it's, and it's lovely, though, because 
it means that we've got you know it's very hard when you when you're writing nobody really understands what you do except another writer um so nobody it is a bit of a mad thing to do you know to be talking to people in your head the whole time and and particularly if you're if you are a crime writer and you're spending a lot of time researching fairly gory things um there aren't that many people you can have conversations with about it um and so it's brilliant they're great i think they're a great support we have great we have great fun chatting and we're all interested in the same type of thing so i think our internet histories would all have us banned off the off the internet if people could see them but uh, internet search histories but uh, yeah no it's great there is a, there's a big big movement yeah you mentioned that having to research slightly grim things but you also did mention that your husband was in the irish police force and i did wonder did his work help you to get a bit more of a grip on how the police in ireland work or was it a bit of a banned subject at home no, it definitely was useful. I think it's more, it's, I mean, he, he doesn't help me massively. He does help me with the books, but um, he actually, ha- I have colleagues of his that I tend to take them to so that I can get sort of their unbiased opinion, if you like. Um, but it's very useful for me because the culture of the of the police force is a very particular thing. I think the culture in the UK would be similar and, and no doubt in New Zealand as well. Um, and um, that's something I wanted to capture. I wanted to get a feel, I wanted my detective to feel like a detective and uh, to make sure that all the details were right, that, you know, that it wasn't all just um, fictional because these people are real people. They've got real jobs. Um, and I wanted to get a, a sense of the reality, I suppose, um, blurring them, I suppose, blurring the edges a bit fact and fiction um so so yeah so it's very useful and it's very useful for me then to have access to people to read the books um you know and if i get stuck i've just finished book three and um there's um a traffic accident in the in the middle of the book and i was able to speak to some of the traffic guys and you know find out all about how they reconstruct scenes and how they do um create three-dimensional images and you know all the the sort of forensic stuff um it's fascinating i'm always fascinated by forensics in fact my husband was uh, working very closely with the state pathologist when i first started writing and um, dr marie she's actually professor dr marie cassidy uh, and she was fantastically generous in reading early manuscripts and giving me books and and um, really helping me along the way. So everybody's really, really um, helpful. But to me, I think when you're writing crime, crime readers are, are intelligent people. They're people who like mystery and they like puzzles and they like crossword puzzles. Um, and they probably read more crime than I'm ever going to manage. So they are very versed in things like forensics and all that type of thing. And so you want to get the detail right. You know, if the detail's wrong, it's going to jerk them out the story. Um, and so my job as an author, I suppose, is to get that level of authenticity in. Um, so, yeah, certainly having connections with the force is a big bonus. Mm-hmm. Tell me, is there one thing in your writing career that you've done more than any other that you think's been the secret of your success? Um, one thing I've done more. I think just writing and rewriting and rewriting and um I suppose taking time over it. Um, I think one of the things you have as an as a debut writer, as a new writer, is that the luxury of time. Um, I talk about this when I do workshops. Um, you don't realise it at the time because obviously everybody's desperate to get published, um, and you know you write your first book and you think it's amazing and you send it out and. and you know, maybe the second and the third as well. Um, but certainly when it came to Write Little Bones, I started it, I knew, the, I knew the story, I knew the bones were in the dress, but I didn't know why they were in the dress. And I didn't actually start it off with a detective character. I started off with the artist um, when I started sort of writing my way into the story. The artist, Zoe, who features in the book, um, was the place where I started. Um, and um, I think it was that, it was having the time to be able to write and rewrite and play around with it. And there are lots of chapters that never went into the book. There was a, a whole draft of it that had that didn't have the angel character in it at all. It had 
they had Ashley was his father who was in who featured in the book um so it was a lot of playing around and getting it right um and that is something you can only do when you have time to do um when you get into a contract situation so with the when I um got the deal for Little Bones it's actually a three book deal um so I'm now in contract contract situation where you then have to quite trot out the the subsequent books quite quickly um and certainly the third book I had to really write quite fast um now we're blessed because we have time now to to really look at it properly and I finally got in, in its third draft I think it's there um but I think that's I think that's something would be one of the key things would be, is the is the benefit of being able to write and rewrite and play around with the story and, and really get into it and enjoy it too, which is which is great. Yeah, yeah. I don't know, I don't know if that actually answers the question, but <laughs> no, no, that's great. In the self-publishing world, there is quite a lot of pressure to just churn out books for sure, because this, yeah. this idea yeah. that um, number matters, the number of books you've got matters. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think it certainly. Can, I mean, it can be certainly be a benefit um, in self-publishing if you've got lots of different titles because it gives more, people more options to buy. But it can also mean that the, the quality suffers and that um, I'm sure there are books out there that would have benefited from, you know, a bit more work. Um, I mean, there are some fantastic ones out there. I have a great friend called Hazel Gaynor who wrote an amazing book called The Girl Who Came Home, um, which she had an agent for and um, she the agent sent it out to all the various London publishing houses, but it was getting quite close. It's a book about the Titanic and it was um, getting quite close to the Titanic anniversary. And um, it was too close for them to publish it really. It didn't sort of, they couldn't get it to work in their publishing program. So it got turned down and she decided to self-publish it. And it's a brilliant book. She sold a hundred thousand copies. She got two New York agents, new agents um, who were interested in it. Um, and in the end it went to auction with William Morrow and became a Harper Collins book. So, um, so there are lots of books out there which are fantastic as well. Um, but I think that I think the benefit of time is a really, really good thing if you can if you can make the most of it and you know think about your take time, think about your think about your story, think about what you've written, listen to your subconscious mind. Um, I'm a great believer that your subconscious mind knows, and if something doesn't quite feel right when you're writing it, then listen and you know try and try and fix it. Great, yes. If you were going to organise a magical mystery literary tour for your books. Where would you suggest that people go? You've mentioned that they're set in um, the on the outskirts of Dublin. Tell us a little bit about that. Okay, so if you if you were coming from your part of the world and you were flying into Dublin city, um, there's a little train that's called the Dart. Um, train which runs around the coast runs around Dublin Bay Dublin set in um, on the coast of Ireland and it's there's a big a big bay um, Dublin Bay um, sort of round it if you like uh, with the Liffey River then going up in through the city um, and if you follow the coastline around comes out down to the south um, particularly if you get this little train it's, it's a beautiful beautiful train ride um, you pass through some beautiful places but then you get to Dunleary which is where the, the story is set and literally it's only probably 20 minutes outside of the actual Dublin city centre um, and the police station um, is in in Dunleary where Cathy is based or Cat Connolly is based um, is actually the police station my husband used to work in um, so I know it very well. And um, it's literally, Dunleary is a beautiful harbour, so it has a, a big pier and um, there's some lovely walks all the way around there. So you could do that. And then you could go around to Dorky, which is where the most of the Little Bone story is based. Um, as you're passing, as you're on your train, you're passing the terrace um, in Monkstown where um, the uh, Zoe's grandmother lives um, in Little Bones. Um, the terrace of very tall Georgian houses, there's a bit of action there. Um, and then it, it, you, you follow the train right, 
line round, um, you've got the sea on your left-hand side and the mountains, you can see the Wicklow Mountains from the train. Um, and you go down to the little village of Dorky, which is where most of the story happens and where Zoe has her, her cottage. Um, and... Um, Dorky literally is is on the is on the coast again in the medi- in medieval times it used to be quite an important harbour but now it just has a little tiny harbour um, and literally from from um, Zoe's cottage when Cat Connolly does a, has a has a bit of a run up Kalini Hill it's all quite a wooded area there um, it's very beautiful and you can you can walk all around there so there's lots of lots of places to see along the way actually it's quite picturesque um, and then if you were going to go a little bit further part of Little Bones is actually based in London. It's based in the east end of London, um, and so you'd have you can might be able to wander down through Whitechapel Market um, and down through Bethnal Green. They're all places. All the places in the book are real because, um, again, I'm really interested in making sure that um, the it feels real. So if people are living in the area and they read it, they can see exactly what I'm talking about and where I'm talking about, um, and um, and you know it just feels a little bit more real to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in the second book. In deep water, you you've said that that was sparked by an unsolved disappearance of an American student that happened much yeah. about the time that you yourself arrived in Ireland in the mid nineties. I yeah. wondered what initially took you to Ireland, P- possibly a romance with this police officer. But I yeah, did- <laughs> I got married. <laughs> That's basically it. <laughs> I, yeah, moved here to get married and uh, came to Ireland in nineteen. 19- 92 I think yeah and the the disappearance is um, the disappearance of a girl called Annie McCarrick um, who was an American student um, and I was living in a town called Bray which is just a little bit further south um, of Dorky if we're looking at our sort of map of, of Dublin and um, again it's a coastal town um, and she disappeared in a little village um, just at the foot of the Wicklow Mountains um, called Enniskerry which is was literally only about five five minutes from where I was living um, and it was a really remarkable case because um, we had we had a problem at the time. We had a whole load of women were disappearing. Um, there, were, I think, I think there were nine altogether, and um, they um, they became known as the missing women. But I don't think people realised, or we didn't realise at the time, that she was one, she would become one of them. Um, but she went to Enniskerry village and um, and completely and utterly vanished. Um, and there was no, you know, there was a huge huge guard operation. Um, and her movements were traced, and you know it was known that she was got she got onto a couple of different buses, and she lived in Renola, which is just um, in south of Dublin city, and um, she got on a couple of buses to come out to Enniskerry. But it was late in the afternoon. It was in March when it gets dark early, and um, it was just, there was lots of lots of things that just were strange about the whole thing, and um, and there's no trace ever been found of her. So I think it was because she was American. It was literally I'd been in Ireland. I arrived in the September, and she disappeared in the March. She disappeared somewhere so close to where I lived, um, and I think it was because she was a foreigner in 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 this country, and I was a foreigner in this country. That um, I just really connected with her, and I've always always wondered what what on earth happened um and studied the case in a lot of detail um to to you know to really just get into it and i know obviously well, know all the landmarks that are um that are mentioned in the case um and one part of um in deep water actually um it mentions johnny fox's pub uh, which is up in the in the mountains in the dublin mountains and that um was one of the last places that she was thought to have been seen um so yeah tried to just was just tying into that I'd always been very interested in, in what happened to annie I must say that I was very glad to see that the Annie character in your book actually, well, I won't have a spoiler, but we do know what happens to her. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's a, she's an American student as well. Um, but, 
first. Um, she doesn't disappear in End Scary. She disappears somewhere else. And um, we do find out what happens to her, indeed, yeah, <laughs> in the end. <laughs> so I'm wondering, what do you hope that readers take away from your books? Is there a deeper message that you are wanting to communicate or, or do you see them plain as plain entertainment? Um, I think very much entertainment. I think you read, you read to take yourself out of the place you're in, to take you, you know, to go to a different world. Um, and I hope that um, they can carry people from what, in whatever part of the world they're in um, to see a little part of Ireland and see what it's like, um, and um, to hopefully set, set the mystery that's going to want that want. Uh, um, to make them keep turning the pages, if you like, um, and, and grip them and hold them in and, you know, tie them into the story. So um, I want people to feel like they 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 know Kat Conley and that they, they know her as well as I do. Um, I feel like she's, a, she's, I feel like she's one of these pen pal people who you, who you don't see, but you know really, really well. And every time you meet them, you can just pick up right where you left off. You know, we've all got, we've all got friends like that around the world. Um, and so I feel like I know her really, really well. And I hope that the reader by the end of the book certainly feels like they do too. Great, yes. Look, Sam, perhaps turning to you as a reader, this this uh, podcast is called The Joys of Binge Reading and the, the series read has become more of a phenomenon in recent years. Have you got authors that you've binge read in the past? And if so, could you share them with us? Yeah, definitely. When I first stumbled across the first Jack Reacher book, from Lee Child, then I just couldn't get enough of them. I think I read ten of them in a week. Um, I um, yeah, was completely mad about it. a lovely child, and I've been blessed to have interviewed him um, as well. So it's great um, to to actually chat to him and find out what goes into into those books. He's an amazing, amazing man. Um, so no, absolutely adored the Jack Reacher series, um, and I did the same with Karen Slaughter when I found her first. Um, you know, you find you find I don't know how I. I miss these people, to be honest. But anyway, I, I discovered Karen Slaughter and definitely binge read hers, book after book after book, all brilliant. Um, did the same with the Stephanie Plum series, um, the Janet Ivanovich books, which I really are just hilariously funny. And I've just realised my um, just realised my agency, the agency I'm with now, actually represents her as well. And her her latest one's just come out. I think it's called Hardcore Twenty Four. Um, it's just about to come out now, and um, so I'm really looking forward to reading that because I think they're they're fantastic books. Yeah, no. So absolutely, I would. I think when you get into a character and you just really love the character, um, you um, you just you just want to stick with them. You know, I remember many, many, many years ago doing the same with British Cornwell as well. You know, sitting down and just reading all the books back to back, um, and that's quite a nice thing about finding an author late in life, you know, or late in their writing career because they've got more stuff for you to read. Um, you know, we try and we have to get a book out. As in sort of commercial fiction, we have to get a book out, one book out a year. But um, that's a long time to wait. You know, if you pick up Little Bones and you have to wait a year to read In Deep Water, um, that can be a while to wait. So it'll be, uh, hopefully, it'll be nice to somebody when they find perhaps when the third one comes out and they discover Sam Blake that they'll be able to read all three together. Yes, perhaps turning to that, um, what is next for Sam Blake, the writer? You've mentioned this book three. Tell us a little bit about it. Okay, so book three is called No Turning Back um, and it's all about the dark web. A lot of it's set around Trinity College in um, in Dublin, and um, yeah, it's about um, webcams and hacked webcams, and um, and a, a good bit about the dark web. So it's um, a, it's a mystery story again. Um, two unre- what well, apparently unrelated um, two students who know each other, but who who the cases are unrelated. Um, 
wind up dead, basically. And uh, Kat Connolly has to find out sort of how and why and who's involved. Um, and um, hopefully it, it, it all works. I've just, let's say, just sent it into my editor, the third draft bit, and um, I'm pleased with it now. So um, so it's all hanging together. So, yeah, so you still have a third one to come. And then I have to see whether my publisher wants to do more Kat Connolly's or whether we do something different. My agent wants me to write a stand and alone in the gap because I have a little bit of time because of this staggering of the publication dates. Um, no turning in deep water is just coming out in your part of the world and in the UK um, in February next year. Um, and um, this is very complicated, but no turning back will be coming out in June in Ireland, but then it won't be coming out in the UK until the following year. So no, um, there'll still be a, a new sound Blake on the horizon for everybody um, until I think 2019. So I've got a bit of time now to write a new book um, and he's quite keen for me to write a standalone. So I'm at that stage now where I've got lots of bits of ideas um, and no actual idea um, at the same time. So it's, that's a bit of a horrific place to be when you're a writer. And the same thing, it's, it's ironic because the same thing happened with both the other two books in deep water and no turning back. When you start them, um, you've got lots of bits of ideas and no actual solid idea, but at least I had core characters there because I knew it was going to be a cat mystery. Um, and actually, no turning back is interesting because it takes Cat and Dawson O'Rourke on a on a stage because that's one of the other the threads through the stories is that they're sort of um, Cat Cat's really quite mad about Dawson O'Rourke, her her inspector, um, and um, sort of their relationships developed a bit more across the next two books. Um, so um, yeah, so book three, uh, book four, it'll be. I have to wait and see what it's going to be about. I don't know yet. We shall see. I've got a title, but I haven't got, and I've got a couple of characters, but that's all. <laughs> Yes, quite a challenge. <laughs> oh, it certainly is to find 100,000 words, but uh, we'll get there in the end. So you just have to write your way in. I was doing an, uh, an event, I've been doing events this weekend um, at the Dublin Literary Festival, Dublin Book Festival. And um, one of the ladies I was talking to last night, we were doing a, a workshop called Cracking Crime. And um, one of the ladies is a girl called Julie Parsons. And she was saying that a really great uh, author called John Mortimer had said that the best plots come from the from the tapping of the tapping of the keyboard. So it's, you know you need to write your way into a story. The best ideas come when you're working on something else. So I should have to start writing on the, the, the next one now. That does spark off another random question, and that is: Are you a, a big outliner, or do you really more not not exactly pants it, but does the story develop as you write, or do you start with quite a strong outline? I start with, I do feel more comfortable. I think I've come up with certainly um, sort of this fourth book is the sort of evidence of the, of the you know, which way you work. Um, I come up with an idea um, and I, I need to plot it out to a certain extent to know that there's a whole idea there, that there's a whole book. Um, so I've come up with lots of ideas and when I've started plotting them, I've got, you know, a bit of the way in, but then it's just fizzled out um, or it, there hasn't been enough in there. Um, that said, when you start writing, even it doesn't matter, you know, how much detail you have in your plot, um, you need to allow the characters space to take off on their own. And quite often um, the characters will take off and you'll go down a route that you never expected or there'll be a twist that you didn't see coming. And um, and that's fantastic when that happens. That means it's all working really, really well. So, yes, yeah, so I'm quite a strong plotter. I like to know what's going on. I like to know what's happening. Um, but at the same time, I think you have to be able to trust your writing voice and, um you know, basically the key the key thing is just to get something on the page, to try and get, you know, 100,000 words of something written and then you can shape it afterwards and, and you know, if there's plot holes or there's problems or issues or whatever those might be, then then they're very fixable because you, you're working within a framework of, um, you know, character, location, you've got your time frame, all those types of things worked out. Um, so I suppose it's a bit of both. There's not, there's not a simple answer to that. I like to plot and plot 
plan that makes me feel quite secure and I know there's a, there's a whole story there if I plot it out a bit but certainly when I'm writing it, it can, anything can happen. Right so coming around to a conclusion at this stage in your career if you were doing it all over again what if anything would you change? I don't think I'd change anything actually. Um, I love Cat Connolly. I mean I, I think I wouldn't have it would have been great if I didn't have to wait quite so I hadn't been writing for quite so long I think because I was writing for a very long time between starting writing and getting published. That took a lot longer than I thought it was going to. But it wasn't like I was I was busy setting up businesses and having children. And I've, I edited, excuse me, edited a couple of books and had lots of short stories published in that time. So it wasn't like I wasn't doing anything. Um, so it would have been lovely if it all happened a bit quicker. But I mean, I could have been younger and enjoying it. But I think it's great as it is. No, I love it. I'm thrilled. Um, and I mean, th- really thrilled with the success of Little Bones and Little Bones uh, was first published in Ireland it went into number one and was there for four weeks and stayed in the top ten for another four weeks so I can't really can't ask for better than that it's great it's great to write a book and then it for it to be a bestseller I mean that's amazing um so now it's I think yeah I think it's great I just have to if I could if I could have more ideas on tap I need um I need some voice sort of voice that would come and talk to me then that would be, be amazing but uh, uh, I think everybody has loads of ideas it's just a case of working out which one you're going to write about sure sure so we are running to the end of our time and I just want to say thanks so much for being with us. Where can people find you and your books online? Are you busy on social media or I'm yeah, I'm very busy on social media. I have a lot I have a lot of websites and a lot of different bits pieces going on so sam blake has a website samblakebooks.com and i am sam blake books on twitter um and then i run a very big uh, website called writing.ie which is really useful for anybody who's interested in writing um, and wants to know more about it from the the very beginning from the get-go of the story right the way through to getting published and then marketing a book um that's a huge magazine site so writing.ie um the website has various Facebook pages and writing writing underscore IE is the Twitter for that. Um, and then as Vanessa, I have um, another website, which is Inkwell. And um, I am Inkwell HQ um, under my own name. But um, I like, to, I mean, I, I, I run both. So I run Sam Blake and I run Inkwell, um, depending on what mood I'm in and what I'm doing. Uh, and every now and again, Inkwell and Sam Blake have conversations between themselves too. So that can be a bit confusing for people. But uh, yeah. So yeah. So lots of lots of social media, but sandblakebooks.com is the website. Wow. It sounds like you spend a lot of time simply writing online. Yeah. Well, too, yeah. Everybody can spend too much time. I'm, I'm spending a lot less these days. It has to be said. Um, I'm very lucky that I have a wonderful girl who runs the social media for writing.ie, and um, I yeah try and keep. When you look through my accounts, there's lots of lots of retweets of interesting stuff that I found, but not so much of me chatting away because yeah you can find you could nearly write a whole book on twitter and actually not ever write a book so yeah you have to be careful not to get sucked down that rabbit hole of social media yeah look well look it's been great having this chance to talk to you it really has and i must admit i haven't looked very closely at writing.ie i'm going to have to go and do have a very good look there it's been wonderful talking to you sam and i'm really confident that um your next book, the third in the series, is, is going to be just as good as the other two were. So thanks a lot. Oh, you're so good. And listen, thank you so much for having me on. It's wonderful to speak to you. And, I'm, and you're in, on the other side of the world, and it's great. Isn't modern technology amazing? It is great. <laughs> yeah.
fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. They say there's that little cliche, there's no better time to be a writer, but I think it's true. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. And uh, yeah, there's yeah, there's no, there's no good time to do anything. You have to just do it. I think that's that's really, really important. And if people are passionate about, um, about writing, then you just get on, get stuck in, get that book written. Lovely. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.